Geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 sovereign states. My name is Kiki. And my name is Brad. And as always, we are your hosts. This week, our discussion is on the nation of... Fiji! familiarity ratings before our research you take us off brad well first off i want to say i'm really impressed with the way kiki pronounced initial familiarity ratings <laughs> it's a really hard combination of words a breath must be taken before it's tackled um so my overall thoughts are that no brad what are your initial familiarity ratings oh we're gonna go right into that why don't you uh... <laughs> all right out of out of a bold 10 i'm gonna give myself a 1.5 for fiji i was really just trying to make you say initial familiarity ratings because i know you don't like saying it, it that's a danger it's dangerous <laughs> um your ifr <laughs> <laughs> my ifrs why haven't we done that before okay it's your ifr quotient <laughs> 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 okay so my 1.5 stems from the fact that okay I, i've heard of fiji before obviously i know i've seen pictures of, of, of fiji uh, i know the tourist destination of you know fiji water that's that's in the <laughs> canon of, of our everyday lives um but other than that i don't know much about it politically geographically etc you know the real actual stuff about the country and so this is, will be one of those episodes where it's it's all learning it's all beneficial and i'm excited what about you kiki um, again, I'm I'm pretty low on my familiarity rating here. God, smooth. <laughs> smooth as butter. It's really good. Uh, I'm going to say I'm a one. I've always heard of it as like a tourist destination. Um, I was saying a little bit before we recorded, when I was in elementary school, we had like a class book that we read called Stowaway. And it was about like Captain Cook's, uh, ad- not adventure, but expedition is what you say when it's professional. Um, professional adventuring um the hms endeavor excuse me it's not super relevant but it kind of is um so like it was from the perspective of like an 11 year old boy who stowed away on the ship and then they get to what would be fiji but james cook actually doesn't stop there they just kind of go past it but i kind of put that mentally and like the culture of polynesian influence what was happening in like the 1700s there mm-hmm. so when i was doing my research it kind of set a scene where i'm like i'm familiar with this because of this book i read when i was 11 which was my favorite book uh but still nice. i don't know anything that's been going on i know my sister had a friend from fiji her freshman year and i guess they're still technically friends i don't know that that's ever ended um <laughs> but that's what i know about fiji i guess all right so one and a 1.5 we're not starting off too hot we never but do, though. And I always feel like at the end, right. we get our, our humble changes. We do. All right. So why, why don't you just give us a snapshot of what Fiji is, Brad? I'd be overjoyed, too. So um, the Republic of Fiji, the motto of Fiji is Rerevaka na kalu kadoka natui, which means fear God and honor the king. Damn straight. <laughs> Damn straight. Uh, the anthem, which you heard the um, the last movement of, a few minutes before is called God Bless Fiji, you know. Agree. Agree. Um, here's just a little um, 
geographic information. So Fiji is an island country in Oceania in the South Pacific Ocean. It's about uh, 1,100 nautical miles northeast of New Zealand's North Island. Um, its closest island neighbors are Vanuatu, yes, yeah, Vanuatu to the west, New Caledonia to the southwest, um, some more of New Zealand's islands to the southeast, Tonga to the east, uh, the Samoas and France's uh, Wallace and Futuna to the northeast, and Tuvalu to the north. Um, Fiji itself is an archipelago. Of, we looked that one up. We did look that one up. Uh, of more than 330 islands, um, only 110 of which are permanently inhabited, and more than 500 uh, islets, islets, small islands. <laughs> baby um, islands. Baby islands. Uh, this amounts to a total land area of about 18,300 square kilometers. Um, the two major I- islands, uh, Viti Levu and Vanua Levu, account for 87% of the total population, and that total population, I'll give you, just give it here, is 898,760. I believe that's the 2016 census um, recording. And that makes it the 161st, I believe, um, populous country in the world. Um, the capital is Suva, and that's on the island of Viti Levu. Um, it's their largest city, their capital. It's their major principal cruise port, which is very, very big for Fiji. Um, about three quarters of Fijians, and there's the demonym, yeah, Fijians. Um, they live on Viti Levu's coasts, either in Suva or in smaller urban centers like Nadi or Lautoka. Um, but the interior of, this, of these main islands is really sparsely inhabited due to the, the rough terrain. Um, and the little overall kind of economic view is that Fiji is one of the most developed economies in the Pacific. It's an abundance of forest, mineral, and fish resources. Um, although the main sources of foreign exchange for their currency now are like the tourist industry and sugarcane exports. Now, the official languages they are English, which will become evident once we get into the history, the influence of the, of the English, uh, the Fijian as a language, and then Fiji Hindi. Um, I thought it was surprising until I learned this. So the ethnic groups, the ethnic makeup of Fiji, uh, 56.8% of the population is uh, I Tau K, or Tau Kie. Um, this is the indigenous Fijians. Um, 37.5% are of Indian descent. Uh, one... For reasons we'll, we'll become a quick apparent. I can't wait to learn. Did you see? I was going to say, for reasons will be clear and for reasons which will be apparent. And that's how I got for reasons which will be a clarent. <laughs> I like it. Um, it's a portmanteau. It's, it's, it's crystal clear. Um, 1.2% are the Rotumans. I don't know who those people are. Um, uh, 4.5% are others, other ethnic groups. I believe uh, there's some English, there's Ch- Chinese. Um, the religious makeup is 64.4% Christianity. I believe the majority of those are the Methodist Church of Fiji. 27.9% follow Hinduism. And then 7, 7.7% other religions. We talked about the demonym that the f- people of Fiji are referred to as Fijians. The government is a unitary, parliamentary, constitutional republic. It's a very popular system we've seen so far across mm-hmm. many, many countries who are republics. No, it's worth mentioning also that uh, Fiji is a commonwealth country, or commonwealth nation. Meaning it was once a part of the British Empire, and it is now. We're going to learn more about that when you... We will. Yeah. But I think it's our first commonwealth? Never mind. Antigua and Barbuda are. Antigua and Barbuda were. Were. They are. Are. They still? Okay, okay. 
Because Commonwealth means that, like, they're still, like, autonomous. They just, they can say that the queen is their queen. And... Um, the president is George Conrote. And the prime minister is Frank um, Bainimarama. Yeah. It's not Frank Bananarama. It's, it's not And that's not the only time Frank I make Bananarama. that joke is at the beginning, because when I was doing my research, all I could see was Bananarama. <laughs> um, the currency used in Fiji is the Fijian dollar. And a little bit of just the etymology of Fiji, where the name comes from. So that my, the main island we referenced earlier is called Viti Levu, and it is from this that the name Fiji is derived. Um, their neighbors, uh, the Fijians' neighbors in Tonga, actually, it, their English pronunciation of the Viti um, name kind of is where that Fiji comes from, and it's what it became referred as. Um, all right, so that's our snapshot. There will be a continuation of our new segment, The Linguist Armchair. The Linguist Armchair! The Linguist Armchair. Um, that segment will take place during the history when it becomes more germane as to where some of the linguistic um, influences come in. Kiki will guide you through that. And so I'm going to hand things off to her. Kiki, take us back into antiquity, please. All right. Um, so, Fiji is believed to have been settled by the Austronesian people in about 3500 BCE uh, and the Melanesians about a thousand years after that, um, coming up from Indonesia and down from Southeast Asia. So I note about this. The Austronesian people are a group of people joined under a language superfamily that includes people from East Africa, Oceania, and Southeast Asia. Wow. Whereas Melanesia refers to the sub-region of Oceania that includes the Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, and Fiji. Uh, and I try to get our linguist armchair, the linguist in the armchair, to talk about this, but she didn't want to. She wanted to talk about what she wanted to talk about, so I learned this on my goddamn own. Wow. Um, but so when you see this in the future, Austronesian um, refers to the language huge family under which all these people are united, um, and Melanesia refers to the geographical location that some people are from. So Fiji was hit. If you can see my arms while you're listening, paint us a picture, Kiki. Yeah, down through from Southeast Asia, and then kind of swoop up from the other side. Um, and that's how we get our first population and the ancient people who lived there. So we don't really know that much about them because there was no written language mm -hmm. to record this history. But we do know a lot about um, Polynesian people. And one of the things that we know about Fiji, too, is the influence of the Tongan people on Fiji as one of their closest island neighbors. Um, and what came to be a pretty powerful empire on their own in the 10th century A.D., so beginning around that time, the Tongan Empire spreads to Fiji. They actually encompass two of the lower islands in the Fijian island train. And they spread Polynesian culture, customs, and language. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that empire begins to decline in the 13th century. But there's some prominent figures and some um, Tongan kings that really include Fiji and, and all of this stuff. And what we know about Polynesian culture, too, even affects us in America and Hawaiian culture. We see a lot of really interesting things. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we're looking at probably until uh, the 13th century, is that kind of development of islandy things. I think I pulled my notes. So we start really getting a good developed history when Europeans hit the island with written language and education. This happens primarily through missionaries, which we'll talk about, and we'll talk about with our linguists today. Um, but the first person to, the first European, I should say, excuse me, to spot Fiji is Abel Tasman, as in Tasmania. Oh, cool. So he was a Dutch navigator. He visited the the northern island of Vanua Levu in 1643, was followed by James Cook, famous guy, in 1774. 
these islands were first charted by a William Blake or Blyg? Yeah. It's like Blyg. Well, I'm pretty sure I might have a typo in there. And actually, uh, so he's the first person to chart these islands, and they were actually called, they're named after him for a little bit. They were called like the Blyg Islands. Ugh, not my first choice. Um, yeah, right. Blyg <laughs> 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 Islands. <laughs> Um, and the strait between the two main islands of Vanua Levu and Viti Levu are named the Blyg Straits because of this guy. Uh, the first European settlers, actually people who actually decided to live there, uh, were shipwrecked convicts who are on their way to the penal colonies of Australia. Not a great start. <laughs> Not the best. Um, but they reach some, they get some benefits there because they start learning that, hey, this island has some stuff that people like hmm. called sandalwood called breadfruit and sea cucumbers breadfruit what's that breadfruit is pretty similar to jackfruit it's a big spiky fruit that grows on trees a lot of this i remember from reading stowaway as a kid because they talk about it at length oh Um, and also as a vegetarian and familiar with jackfruit it's becoming this big thing because of its texture it has a kind of bland potato-like flavor um and they say it like when it's cooked it's kind of like bread which is how it gets its name um, but it grows in abundance in tropical regions, and so it becomes more of like a staple food group. People can eat breadfruit for days uh, without stopping. So that's what breadfruit is. If you're looking for a breadfruit experience, I would recommend jackfruit. And guess what? They're all in the mulberry family. I bet you after this podcast, you know, hits the web, because we have thousands and thousands of listeners at this point. Yeah, I we're um, probably the most famous podcast to for, ever have existed. We for sure are. So there's going to be a huge craft brewing scene of red fruit now. Yeah, that's going to um, be super cool to yeah. start brewing um, jackfruit to see how it goes. Yeah, red fruit IPA, TM. Um, one, recommend, one, one, re- one recipe I'll recommend is like if you get jackfruit and you like sh- you can kind of shred it up like cold pork yeah. and then put barbecue sauce on it and it's kind of like a sloppy joe. And here's the thing. This is completely off topic, but I was a vegetarian. There's not enough opportunities for me to eat things with barbecue sauce on them, which was my favorite condiment for, you know, years. But all like the things that you're supposed to have, like barbecue sauce with our meats, um, and I like you can kind of swing French fries, but only if you're a sadist. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, having the opportunity. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's what breadfruit is, similar to jackfruit, which is what we're familiar with. Anyway, keep it on going. That was a great tangent. Uh, sandalwood, though, becomes the main export of the island. That's used in a lot of religious ceremonies, used for its incense purposes. Um, you know, sometimes used even to make sandals. Why it's called sandalwood. Um, so it has very aromatic properties, uh, and that becomes a main export for like 10 years before they kind of farm it out, and they're like, well, we got to figure out something, something else. All right, and so my next slide is called The Thing About Cannibalism. So with the growing European presence and the um, missionaries that are beginning to develop in the Fijian islands, cannibalism comes up a lot. It comes a lot in my research when I'm doing it now. It's a reputation thing. And here's the dish. Cannibalism did happen in Fiji for a super long time. And maybe as our Western minds are squeamish about it, like people eat people for different reasons. I feel like I'm not too bothered by it because, you know, you're just... Just eating your enemies and stuff. Um, so the thing about cannibalism in Fiji is believed because they're boating people because they're on islands. That became kind of a resource thing when people were on boats and they were running out of food. They ate somebody. 
this developed into a cultural thing where it was believed that if you ate your enemy's brains and heart, um, as well as, as their muscles, etc., you would gain those powers and their knowledge and their insight. So it became part of like the the spiritual culture of, of like native Fijians, um, and also became kind of like a practical means for like population control to some extent. Just there's a different mentality, so I feel like yeah, we can't judge them. You ever seen the movie Highlander, Kiki? I haven't seen it. Okay, okay, never mind. <laughs> you put that you put that in your pocket. We'll talk about it later. Okay, yeah. Uh, and this like cannibalism is recorded in Fiji up until like the 1860s when colonization really got in a full swing, uh, and white colonizers really used that as a moral imperative to move into the islands and say these natives, what heathens, they eat people. They're godless. We need to save them. Yep. And so people, especially like religious missionaries, started moving in in the large amounts because they're like, these people don't know what they're doing with this beautiful land. Yep. We should probably take over that land and educate them real good. So it was like, it was like the fulcrum for their demonization. Yeah. So um, I actually read a book before the semester started, and it was about actually, uh, I think his name was, uh, we'll get back to you on the name. But he's a guy who basically traveled around the world trying to, trying to find fruits to grow in America. Because oh, when the American palate was so bland, it was like, you can have potatoes and that's all you can have. He's like, I'm going to go get you guys some fucking mangoes, some fucking avocados. I'm going to teach you what eating good is really like. And he gets to... What year is this? This was in the early 1900s. Okay. But he gets to Fiji and he says, he records things some pretty horrible things. But also like... Some people just want to be good storytellers. They want to seem like they're brave. Embellished stuff. Yeah. yeah. So here's that, like, the, the whole thing is, like, I feel like, I feel like they can just not, yeah. I think people are kind of overreacting to the cannibalism thing. Anyway. Okay. So that brings a bunch of Christian mi- missionaries in European settlement. The first European settlement was in, uh, on the island of Levuka, beginning in 1822, and that was like the first modern city that was constructed in the European style. And I feel like that's what they meant when they said modern when I was reading this, is that they meant it was European. I feel like it was kind of like a, well, they were, everything's contemporary. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, I have Christian missionaries begin missioning, um, and then in, in so doing, we have more recorded history. And this is actually where we're going to go to our uh, armchair linguist segment, because Maureen, our linguist, sociolinguist, PhD guest, segment regular, um, is going to tell us about what missionaries do, how they do it, and what what effect it has on language. So take it away, Maureen. I'll take away this segment because she has her own intro. This segment is supplemented with information from the book Colonialism and Missionary Linguistics, edited by Zimmerman and Kelemiah Robine. A lot of what we know about exotic languages is owned to the linguistic activities of missionaries. Uh, They put languages into writing, uh, put them in a standardization process, describe their grammar and lexicon, but all of those things come with Eurocentric manipulation. Colonial missionary work is part of an intellectual or religious conquest formed partly by colonial rule, although sometimes it went against specific objectives of an official administration. In most cases, uh, missionary work in linguistics did not help to stop or even reinforce the displacement and discrimination of the languages they recorded. 
While missionary work in Fiji worked to codify Fijian into a written language, this process is overshadowed by the colonial language politics that are mixed in. As I mentioned in the Montenegro episode, language can be an extremely important component of personal and national identity. A common component of colonial rule is to supplant indigenous languages with that of the colonizer. In this case, the replacement of indigenous Fijian languages with English. This process has racialized overtones. Colonizer justifications present indigenous peoples as racial and cultural inferiors. The racism present in that reasoning also bleeds in the language ideologies, that the language is somehow inferior as well. This is simply untrue. No human language is more or less capable of expression than any other language. The linguistic structure of Fijian is easily as nuanced as English. However, eroding the presence of the Fijian language under the guise of modernizing Fiji also erodes at a Fijian identity, a useful strategy for colonizers to quell resistance and facilitate assimilation to colonial rule. Because of this, we may not be surprised to see that there has been a resurgence of Fijian in its current post-colonial era. Nonetheless, there is considerable debate as to whether Fijian should be required in schools. In 2005, a number of prominent Fiji Islanders called for the status of Fijian to be upgraded. The present education minister, Rotimumu Kipa, endorsed calls for it to become compulsory, as did the Great Council of Chiefs. Similar calls came from the Fiji Labor Party, director of the Institute of Fijian Language and Culture, and from Fijian who argued that that the recognition of the Fijian language is essential to the nation's basic identity as a unifying factor in Fiji's multicultural society. Arguments against Fijian in schools tended to be more global in nature. If English is already the national language and is the current lingua franca of the global community, then what use is a language that only Fijians can understand? Still others argue that it's dangerous to assume that Fijian children will automatically learn their own language. Previous generations had emphasized prioritizing English on the assumption that Fijian could be learned later. This attitude is common in countries where one language is given more power than another, but this has resulted in a generation knowing very little Fijian. To those who value the preservation of traditional Fijian culture, this is a huge loss. Without talking to Fijians themselves, it is difficult to say how the processes of missionary work and colonization impact perception of the Fijian language. While it is easy to criticize both in retrospect, it does not change the fact that Christianity and British culture have been woven into the cultural fabric of contemporary Fiji. However, the debate on Fijian in public schools tells us that the language holds an important symbolic position in contemporary Fijian society. So that was Maureen Kasi, our PhD sociolinguist, with her segment on what she told me on the phone today would be about missionary work and its effect on language and recorded history. You can find her at at Maureen Cossey on Twitter. She has some super great tweets. A lot of them are making fun of me because she is my sister. <laughs> you can also find her on our um, retweet. We've retweeted her on our uh, own Twitter page at the World Podcast. But if you're looking for just her and not us, it is at Maureen Cossey, M-A-U-R-E-E-N-K-O-S-S-E on Twitter. So back to the important stuff. Yeah. Oof. Glad that's over. Um, so the first American expedition was led by a Captain Charles Wilkes in 1840. I don't know if he's Southern. But he sounds bona fide. He certainly does. And he's just looking for, you know, a place to crash. He's like, hey, Fiji, 
I've got a ship now because I'm from America, and I want to see what you got going on. Captain's log. 30 days at sea. <laughs> Still no place to crash. <laughs> <laughs> I got no place to crash. I'm just a gentleman looking to rest my head. This is precisely how Charles Wilkes sounded. Yep, that was actually an audio recording from back in the day that wow, we were able a primary to source document. We are a history podcast, truly. Weird. No one can stop us. So, uh, that was in 1840, and we know that the American Civil War happens 20 years after that. So, when there's some American myths on the island, um, people are looking for tropical regions to, guess what, grow cotton. Because, uh, because of the Civil War, this actually happened, where was it, in Laos that we talked about? When, in cotton production? In was, the 1860s? was it Laos? I thought it was Antigua and Barbuda. I feel like there's a lot of places. That American right. cast its eye on. We've reached a point where I no longer remember everything from all the episodes we've done. Um, but anyway, this happened in another one of our episodes where the Americans... Because <laughs> we know that you guys are just jumping in and out of these. No one's listened to every episode of the podcast yet. <laughs> Shh, Kiki, no. Our thousands of viewers, no. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, thousands of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, cod production in America wasn't happening because of the Civil War. That was a main export big cash money was happening in yeah. cotton. And so America's like, I need whatever cotton I can get. And I bet I can grow some on Fiji. So hundreds of settlers moving from America and Australia to take advantage of the cheap land acquisition. And I say cheap land acquisition because at this time there was no governing body. There was no land office. It was kind of like people would say like, I stake my claim here, I declare. Um, and any native Fijian would be like, sure, that's $700, please. I know. And they actually had no proof of who actually owned the land. But someone made an exchange. They felt like they owned it. They pushed other people out. There was a lot of, like, tense action going on here because no one knew what it was going on anywhere. Um, so, like, squatters, you know? Yeah, but it was very inexpensive for the white people at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and, southern white people, I guess, because of the yeah, they're all, accent you're using. they're all southern because they lack growing cotton. Anyway, so uh, to get some order in this town, the settlers and the native people pushed for a confederacy of the seven main kingdoms in the two main islands. Uh, And then a man named Kakaobao was elected as the first president. This guy actually comes up a lot. He's a prominent native Fijian who really rises to the ranks. He has a lot of natural leadership abilities, we'll say. Uh, And so he's the president of this confederacy. And then white settlers keep pushing inward. And then into like the mountainous areas of the island. And the native tribes really push back. There's actually this one specific native tribe that is just kind of effing over settlers. Uh, And a traveling European missionary named Thomas Baker is killed and eaten by a native tribe along with seven of his uh, Fijian followers. And this causes a huge deal because then the British Royal Navy is like, no, this tribe that killed and ate this guy needs to face retributions for this. And Kachabao, or Kakaobao, is saying, like, yeah, I agree. And he takes um, about, like, 70, 70 of his own men into the mountains to try to beat this tribe, along with some support from the Navy. And he is soundly defeated, mm-hmm. hugely embarrassed by it. Uh, and then the Brit- British Royal Navy is called in to suppress them more. So it's like, you couldn't beat natives with a native army they brought in the royal british navy and so that's like another finger in this pie to try to suppress the native people uh and this leads kind of to our next segment where 
there's a lot of tension between the settlers and the native tribes. At this point, all the European superpowers like America, Great Britain, etc., really want to get their dirty mitts on Fiji. <laughs> um, most of the white settlers at this point were British Australians. Uh, they didn't want the U.S. to annex it, and the U.S. is like, I got my eye on it, and yep. I'm going to do it. Um, but they were like, no America, please. And I was like, no, no America, please. And But Great Britain didn't super feel like annexing them at this time. So, different solution coming up. Uh, Ma'afu was a Tongan prince who converted to Christianity. Hugely significant in Tongan history and Fijian history because of this and his rivalry with Kakabao. He established a strong administration in Tonga and the Lao Islands, which are the lower islands of Fiji I was talking about before. And this adds pressure for Fiji to get its shit together before Ma'afu says, like, well, might as well have Fiji, too. Yeah. So they form an administration, uh, and they make Hakabao the king. Um, so now it's the kingdom of Fiji, and people are generally down. They're like, sure, even, like, Ma'afu respects Kakabao, their rivals, but he's like, I can see him being the king of Fiji. And he's better than a European settler. Better than a European settler. The, the settlers are like, he gets us, he chill, native people, he's our bro, more or less. I mean, obviously not everyone's going to be happy, but he's yeah. doing it. Uh, and then more white settlers arrive, and then they create more racially motivated problems with the native tribes. So this actually was one of these tribes of, of white settlers who called themselves the KKK, based off of the American KKK. And they're like, we fucking hate natives who live here. And it's just fucking rude. <laughs> you come into their house. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so... It's messed up. Yeah, so they come in and they basically say, like, this is ours now, and they say... Any negotiations weren't negotiations because they would just point their guns and, like, shoot and kill natives pretty indiscriminately. Um, so this was a big a big issue in Katabao's reign. And then blackbirding, which is kind of like Shanghai, but I don't think they call it that anymore. But it's, it's basically when you uh, coerce natives into believing, like, uh, so here's how they did it. Blackbirding is, like, getting people into slavery or like kidnapping people to work so they wanted people to work on these cotton plantations they couldn't find them to work so what they would do is these um i don't i don't think they're government officials necessarily but they were uh people who got people to work for plantations and they would dress up as missionaries hold a bible and go to the native tribes pretending like they were going to convert them they're going to feed them etc and then they would pull guns out of their bibles and say like get on our boat and then kidnap them and then force them into hard labor for 10 years on plantations. It's all kinds of fucked up. Yeah, and they called it blackbirding. It's pretty shitty. Uh, and um, at this time, also slavery and kidnapping natives to become slaves is, is happening in the worst way, especially with this cotton industry that's coming up. Uh, and this also leads into our next segment again, where despite some of Kakabao's military successes... No one here is paying taxes. No one's pitching in their fair share. Uh, and there is so little order that Kakabao asks a man named John Bates Thurston, who is an ex-British uh, military official. Um, and he just kind of hangs out on the island to be, you know, his buddy slash head honcho. He asks him to ask the British to annex the island. And the British are like, fine. And then they're colonized. 1874.
1874. Then 1875, there is a measles outbreak because actually Kata Bao and his two sons go to Australia to celebrate the annexation from the British and they contract measles there, but they bring it back to the island and it wipes out about a third of the population. Quite a significant uh, epidemic. Yep. It's like guns, germs, and steel thing again. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. And then uh, people are blaming the British government already for not properly quarantining them when they recognize the symptoms. So not a strong start for British annexation. Um, so the next governor after the first governor, whose name doesn't super come up, we've got Sir Arthur Hamilton Gordon. He becomes governor, and there's immediate native rebellions, and then Gordon swims back in a big way. He uses military suppression efforts. He calls it the Little War, uh, and he establishes a new administrative system with um, existing hierarchical, like, native uh, governmental infrastructure, I should say. Like, he uses people, but he organizes it in a way that actually lasts a super long time. Okay. So his administration uh, is pretty powerful and influential because of the way he structures it and because right off the bat he squashes a lot of native rebellions i'm not saying he's a good guy i'm just saying he made an effective government uh he also brings in indians from india uh, as indentured servants aka slaves and this is when we start with a whole new chapter in fijian racism and development of socio-social groups. So Fiji has always had tribes of ethnic people plus white settlers, but now we have the new people, the Indians, and they become Indo-Fijians, is what they're referred to. And so it's like a whole new group to be racist against. And then even Indians themselves have a striated caste kind of structure. Yes. So that probably comes in and that's and that's complicates like, things. When you're talking about like the official languages of Fiji too, that's where why we have Fijian Hindu. Yeah. Um, Hindi, yeah. Hindi. And so this, this becomes a large chapter in the 19th century, or the 20th century, the yep. 1900s, uh, because it's it's a whole new thing that really brings us into modern Fiji. So under British annexation, things kind of go as they go. Uh, these tensions keep rising, they keep getting squashed, and there's actually another series of rebellions. Um, I think they're called the Taku Rebellions, uh, but nothing really much came of them. It was just Native people saying, fucking stop, and then the British government being like, you wanted this, <laughs> and squashing it before it really starts. So when we get into the 1900s, uh, in, especially into World War One, start, you know, in, in 19, whatever. 1916. You know, yeah, when it starts. Wait, 1914? Oh my god, I don't remember. I think it's 1914. I think you're... Early 1910s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's after the Titanic, for sure. And that was 1912. Is that your touchstone? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Here's a fun fact. The Titanic swimming pool has not been dry in a long time. Good one. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, ethnic Fijians are prohibited from participating in World War One. So, white settlers in the area can, but they're like, why would we? Uh, so, but there was only one Fijian of chiefly rank who was actually a great grandson of Kakavaos that did join the French Foreign Legion uh, for to participate in World War One, and he received France's highest military decoration, the Croix de Guerre, which means the Cross of War. If you're familiar in French, like I pretend to be. <laughs> um, after going on to complete a law degree at Oxford, this same chief returned to Fiji in 1921 as a war hero and the country's first ever university graduate. Good on Good you. Good for him. 
Uh, and in the years that followed, his name is Ratu Sir Lala Sukuna, um, which is actually his like later title and is what he's known as later, established himself as the most powerful chief in Fiji and forged embryonic institutions for what would later become the modern Fijian nation. I wrote that straight from Wikipedia. Um, but what a notable character. Oh, it's extremely notable. That's From a family of notable characters. Good on you, mate. He's got that Fijian blood. Uh, and then in by the time World War II starts, Fijians are allowed to join the military, and they did. Fiji was also used as a training base for Allied powers because of its oceanic location. Um, pretty good access, a nice little stopping point between Australia and Japan and Southeast Asia. Yeah. So that was them in World War II. Then in 1965, the Constitutional Conference was held in London to discuss Fiji's eventual self-rule. And anxiety started to broil between the Indo-Fijian political powers over the native-owned and controlled land. So the Indo-Fijians are controlling the Fijian government at this point under British annexation. And then the native people are like, well, what about us? Yep. And then the British people are like, well, what about you? <laughs> uh, so they wanted, like, they're like, you guys are going to be independent soon, so you better figure it out. So the native chiefs and, like, the, the people representing the native people try to just fight for what they the best they can get they don't get a super good piece of the pie but they're going to try to learn to deal with it then in 1970 so five years later fiji was granted independence and then there were two military coups in 1987 which were started under the perception that the indo-fijians dominated the government so exactly what they thought was going to happen happened even if it was just a perception when people believe they don't have any control they started acting out mm-hmm. Uh, and this led to a lot of civil unrest, so a lot of Indo-Fijians started leaving, uh, and this created a huge financial strain, uh, but it did make the majority ethnicity the Melanesians, which are the ethnic Fijian people. There was a new constitution in 1990 that institutionalized this uh, power in the Melanesian people, so it, it institutionalized the right for ethnic Fijians to be in control of the government. Uh, then there was a group called, like, Fijians against racial discrimination. Okay. Or something. It was called like GERP. I think <laughs> what it was. Maybe FERP. And uh, they said like, well, we can't be dicks about this. Like, we can't be fucking racist. And so they wanted to go back to the 1970 constitution. A compromise was reached in 1997 and a new, new constitution is supported by Fijian and Indo-Fijian leaders. And then they are readmitted into the Commonwealth. So, I mean, they're still under self-rule, but they get the benefits of being a commonwealth country. Like, I don't know. The queen. Uh, then, my next slide is called Ku Ku Kachu, because in 2000, <laughs> uh, there is another coup. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Instigated by one George Spite, um, which effectively topples the government of Mahendra Chaudhry, who was the country's first Indo-Fijian prime minister, um, and then Commodore Frank Bananarama, Bainamarama, um, who is now the president, this is when we first see him, he assumes executive power after he's the He's prime minister now. He's the prime minister now. Yes. So he was a Commodore then, is prime minister now. This was all in 2000, so 18 years ago. And then there was two mutinies um, when rebel soldiers went on a rampage at the capital city Suba's Queen Elizabeth Barracks. The high court reinstated the constitution... In 2001, and they wanted to destroy to restore democracy, they held a general election, and it was run by an interim prime minister, 
Laisinia carase soco soco duavata ni lewenivanua party. It was like, it's an extremely difficult party title. That was a lot of words in one party title. It was. Um, so we're just going to move on and pretend I didn't say it that way. And if there's any Fijians listening, I'm so sorry. If, you're, if, you're, if there's a real Fijian listening, please rate and review and help, like... Help us! Co- yeah, reach out. This is a learning podcast. We just want to learn. <laughs> uh, in 2005, the Karase government uh, proposed the Reconciliation and Unity Commission uh, to compensate victims for the 2000 coup. Uh, our boy, Commodore Frank Bainamarama, strongly opposes this, but then he agrees with dictators to grant amnesty to supporters of the present government who played a role when the violent coup was a sham. He attacks the legislation. Uh, and then in the 2006 coup d'etat, we were at like three coups since 2000, what, five coups overall? Cuckoo kachu indeed. Yeah, that's why it's called cuckoo kachu. Cuckoo Bless um, you. Bainamarama was... Uh, Bainamarama. I, I, I said Bainamarama. <laughs> you said Bainamarama. I didn't mean to. Um, but uh, he's instrumental in this coup they have a new list of demands to the Karasi government Uh, and then in the Karasi refused to either concede or resign and then in 2009 the court of appeals says this coup has been illegal are there any legal coups? well I guess it depends on who how good the coup was depends on who's cooing I guess yeah I don't know. Who doing the coup? (laughs) This begins the (laughs) 2009 Fijian financial constitution crisis. Fijian. Fijian constitutional crisis. Uh, And uh, it seems like uh, that's kind of where we leave off. We we report Bainimarama under the new order as the interim prime minister, which he still is today. So since 2009, he's the prime minister. Um, and imposed a public emergency regulation on internal travel and allowing press censorship. So, yeah, it doesn't seem like... Well, that was right after their constitutional crisis, it seems. That's true, that's true. Um, I guess things settled down. Yep, and according to where this Wikipedia article finishes... um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I do do my research from other sources, but when I'm lost, I'll go back to Wikipedia. It's just how it is. Anyway... Fiji has been a major contributor to UN peacekeeping missions in various parts of the world. Um, and there's a lot of military bases and personnel who have participated in the Iraq War since the 2003 U.S. invasion. Hmm. In September 2013, a new, new, new constitution, well, I guess it's a new, 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 new constitution, is promulgated to replace the 1997 constitution. And then in September 2014, uh, Bainamarama, for, uh, Fiji First Party, wins the first general elections held since 20, 2006. Okay, so they did finally reach that political stability. Yeah. More or less. Okie doke. All right, I think that takes us to our first break. Alrighty. And we will uh, get back to you um, after the break. <laughs> well said. See you then. <laughs>
Welcome back to the world as we know it. As is tradition, we're going to kick things back off from our first break with a trip to Kiki in the flag corner. It's my favorite segment. <laughs> All right, Charles Wilkes. <laughs> anyway, so the Fijian flag um, is one thing. It's, I think, our first flag of the Commonwealth that still features the Union Jack in the upper left-hand corner. The Union Jack, for our listeners who may not know, is the flag of Great Britain. Rural Britannia, Kiki. Yeah, rural Britannia. Anyway, um, so it, that's it's on a sky blue background with the uh, insignia of Fiji on the other side, balancing it out. The insignia features a lion holding a cacao bean at the top of it, which um, brings not, it back. Not a ball of yarn. <laughs> not a ball of yarn, as Brad thought. Just a little playful guy. Um, which represents, again, the country's links with the United Kingdom. Um the lion being the symbol of the UK. The uh, upper left is sugar cane. The upper right is a coconut palm. The lower left part of the shield is the dove of peace. And the lower right is a bunch of bananas. So the flag is um, actually, the, so this is like the latest variant on the flag. Our boy, I don't want to call him our boy because I don't really like him that much. But Frank Bayamarama. Bayamarama, yeah. He actually proposed in like 2013 to have a a new flag without the Union Jack in it, and to go back to, towards something a little uh, more ethnically Fijian. Which I don't blame them for. No, I don't. And um, they've had quite a few adaptations. One also has um, the other insignia of Fiji in it, which it features some natives holding the shield and a ship and stuff. You can find all of these online. They're all really cool to look at. I've always liked, liked this flag because, you know, when you do, when you're looking at them, you can, like, I can recognize this as Fiji. Um, but seeing it up close and seeing the cool little, cool little lion um, and the things that mean something to Fiji, yeah, this is why I love Flag Corner. This is just a guess, but is, this, is it sky blue because of the Pacific? You know, I'm going to say yes. I don't have a confirmation on that, but based on what I know about flags, okay. I'm going to say probably represents probably. peaceful waters. Yeah. Uh, and it used to be a much darker blue, too. So Okay. Neat. It's a pretty flag. It's a nice one. Um, all right. So, after the flag corner, we say, what are things like in present-day Fiji? And go into our cultural discussion. Oh, good segment. Good segue, <laughs> Kiki. Um, I'm very good at hosting this podcast. <laughs> so, I have a few things that I was just going to bring up. Um, one of my main things was that most people, you say, hey... We'll talk about Fiji. Go somewhere, somewhere on the street in the United States, and they're gonna say, "Oh, like the brand of water." And so I read sure up. Do. I read a little, little up a little bit about it because I, I had a hunch that, just like the Nestle Corporation stuff, their bottled water isn't exactly sustainably sourced and that kind of thing. It's kind of almost uh, predatory how they steal water mm-hmm. from like Michigan. Our listeners can't see, but I'm nodding my head and I realize I need to give some sort of verbal um, affirmation that I am listening. So, yeah, so there's some things I've discovered is that um, Fiji water is a bottled water. It's sourced from an artesian aquifer in Viti Levu, one of those major islands. Um, and then it's shipped overseas from there. So it is bottled in Fiji. Um, but there's been some controversy. They had an advertisement in 2006 saying um, the label says Fiji because it's not bottled in Cleveland. Zing. Zing. Then they did some tests and they found out there was, um, like, six micrograms of arsenic per liter in like Fiji's <laughs> bottled water and there was none in Cleveland's tap water so they kind of zinged uh, yeah, themselves. Yeah, I got them. Um, 
And, and Fiji Water claims... I'm, I'm not trying to disparage a company on our podcast and make corporate enemies. Well, this is not a political podcast. It's, it's not a political podcast. We're not working for Coke. It, we're not. <laughs> Don't tell them, Kiki. <laughs> <laughs> also, Coke, if you wanted us to work for you, <laughs> just let us know. Drop us a line. Um, Send us a DM. Although, um, so we talked about it in Antigua and Barbuda, how sometimes uh, tourism culture doesn't always benefit the, the, uh, the indigenous people who live there. This can also be true for corporations. So even though there's a tagline of Fiji Water, they've said, you know, we're a charitable company, we better the lives of Fijians. Um, that's not always the case. Um, some things have found that um, they will keep exporting the water no matter the, um, the influence it has on the people. Um, and then, But the Fijians also have like a, there's a price tag on their health when a lot of their aquifer and freshwater sources are exported. Um, and they're not the ones really recouping that benefit most of the time. So um, it's, it's controversial. I mean, it's uh, we get the we get to know a little more about Fiji from one of their resources, but also they're losing that resource for people's benefit outside of the the island. Um, and I've also read some things about um, like the sandals, like the sandals resorts. You know, those are oh, all yeah, over yeah, the world. Yeah. Those aren't exactly the most you know sustainable and nice places. They, they come, they kind of come down, and they. They may employ some local people, but they're not really giving those benefits back to the... the no, uh, they're they're primarily yeah. looking for, I mean, staff that speaks English. Yeah. I mean, like most people in anyway. But is willing to, I don't know, put on a little show for white tourists who are willing to spend anything. And white tourists aren't necessarily leaving the resort to go spend money on the island. They're giving their money directly to the resort. So it's not, I mean, of a huge benefit. When In my side hustle this summer, which was... Um, writing blog posts uh, for a third-party service. It doesn't super matter. I wrote a lot of travel posts. Uh, and, like, Fijian resorts would actually come up a lot. Like, you should definitely go to this one because there's some that have entire islands at their disposal. Oh, yeah. So I learned a thing or two about Fijian tourism yeah. then. But it's so resort-based. It's not really... People don't go for the history um, or to check out those super cool volcanic mountains. Yep. And that's a great um, bridge to my, my next point is that, you know... That all being said, there's a great um, Fiji is really like taking control of that tour, tourism industry to benefit themselves as much as they can. They have a great, great website. Um, they have a lot of um, almost 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 a ubiquity of how you can get there as far as like carriers. It just, it's not all like U.S. centric tourism. There's a lot of East Asian tourists, Australia. Um, yeah, there's lots of like different kinds of trips. It's it's some eco tourism stuff like that. Um, like Kiki said, there's some volcanic islands, so there's like some biodiversity. I think they have 40 different kinds of reptiles. So they have like that cool phenomena where like things come to islands and become super duper specialized. Yeah, Darwinism. Yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> um, it's just easy where I should have known that. Uh, but um, yeah, so like you see like the cool stuff that like in Borneo, like the like the yeah, you get, like, stick insects or stuff like yeah, that in Fiji too. Super interesting. Um, flora and fauna that can only like create itself or survive in these islands because they're just kind of remote. Very cool. One thing I'm going to talk about, which I don't think I normally would, is um, sports on Fiji because Ooh, it's a former Commonwealth. Uh, cricket and rugby, pretty big there. Rugby sevens. It's smaller. Rugby sevens. I didn't know yeah, the it, difference. It's the smaller. I think. I think normal rugby. Ha- rugby fans, don't don't at me. Um, I think <laughs> rugby has eleven players. This is like rugby sevens, like seven players at once. I think it's a little different. That's cool. I also know that... <laughs> Fucking bad. As of the <laughs> podcast that I was listening to that was recorded in 2013, 
Um, that was about Fijian poetry. They do not participate in the Commonwealth Games. Small aside, a Fijian poetry podcast? How'd you find that? Well, I googled Fiji on the podcast app, and I listened to what came up. Your research technique is baffling, but I... It is a BBC. <laughs> it's part of the BBC. Oh, neat. So, uh, that's a... Yeah, that's what I learned about Fiji sports. Couldn't find much about their Olympians, which, by the way, did you know that the 2020 Summer Olympics starts exactly two years from, like, two days ago? I saw the tweet from the Olympic Society. I am very excited for it. Where is the 2020 Olympics? It's going to be in Tokyo. In summer? Yeah. Awesome. I love Summer Olympics. I think everybody likes the Summer Olympics a little more. Maybe. Like, I grew up in Colorado. We have mountains. We love okay. winter sports there. And there's a lot of, like, winter Olympians that are from Colorado. But summer just seems like more fun. I can't tell if it's because that's like classic Olympian sports yeah. or if it's because I have, like, I'm from the deep south, Alabama. I have no... You don't even know what snow is. I have, yeah. This is true. I have no claim to winter sport or altitude or Sean White. So... Yeah. It's not your people. Um, are, are there any Olympians from Alabama? Oh, I'm sure there's plenty. There's probably at least one. At least one. There's probably hundreds, Kiki. Maybe. Okay. Um, let's see. So, um, some other stuff, just uh, more, more geography, really, than um, political, but Fiji has six national parks. Um, one of them, the Sigatoka Sand Dunes. Um, they have these, it's, a, it's a cultural heritage site. It's at the mouth of the Sigatoka River. They have these gigantic sand dunes. Um, really beautiful and rolling, kind of this, this dark, like, island sand. Um... They have another national park called the Bu, the Buuma, Buuma. That sounds right. Yeah, they have some beautiful waterfalls, a lot of like rainforests, natural swimming pools. They also have a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, if that's in Lavuka, which I think you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of um, diversity because there are so many different islands. There's 330, and there's some of the smaller inlets or islets. Um, yeah, really fascinating stuff. What's your next point, Kiki? Um, well, I'm looking for it. In the interim, uh, so there's the unofficial national drink of Fiji. It's called kava or yakona. It's a mildly narcotic drink. You know, the best kind. From- I was going to say, um, <laughs> sounds like my kind of drink, Brad. Um, and you get it from mixing the powdered root of the pepper plant with water, and it results in a numb feeling around the mouth, lips, and tongue, and a sense of relaxation. So it sounds like a good Friday night. Um, another kind of interesting geography fact is they have the International Dateline running right around uh, one of the Fiji's main islands of Tavuini. Um, and, it's, it was, and the International Dateline is actually bent around Fiji, so there's a uniform time there. But yeah, International Dateline, right through the heart. Well... That's super cool. I think it is. I feel like I've expended most of my Fijian talking points. Um, I, I, I feel like I think the political situation might be a, a turnoff for some, but it's not as bad as we feel like we've seen from other countries that we've covered. I don't know. It's definitely, that seems like a big broad sweep that I just made. And I don't well, need to. I feel like it's one of those nations who in the... Yeah, in the, that ni- that 90s into early 2000s, they had some political turmoil um, because, I mean, a lot, of our, a lot of our nations do come to grips with, like, post-colonialism, and they gained that in the 20th century. And then once the 20th century, those big major powers worry about the Cold War, they get some, some breathing room to really step back mm-hmm. and say, we want independence. And 
just like you know Cote d'Ivoire had some of that kind of stuff yeah Guatemala Guatemala did um we're seeing some, some trends actually yeah. no Antigua and Barbuda handled it really well they did they <laughs> they really they really killed the post-colonial game <laughs> um so yeah I think it's I think it's fascinating that even though the borders are so disparate because of like the water discrepancies like Tongan culture has influences like mm-hmm. Tulu has influences um there is still an Oceania kind of cultural and a, a diplomacy there. I do look forward in our um, future episodes to cover like more oceanic countries and discover those like small differences that make each island nation different than the other island nations, especially like under the blanket of Polynesian culture. Um, we get even farther into um, islands that are close to New Zealand, like the Maori and how Maori, excuse me, how the Maori influenced is those um in fact i think that it may come up in a a larger more historically detailed nation um like australia or new zealand where we there may be some overlap that may explain larger oceania trends Mm -hmm. just like japan helped explain a lot of trends in east asia and like the other thing like missionaries in the pacific as maureen talked about in linguist armchair how much of what we know about these countries comes from missionaries and from a decidedly Western interpretation of what culture is yep. versus what's them telling us what they know about themselves before missionaries came and how they were able to basically develop a language and write that down. I mean, yeah, that, that, like you said, it goes back to the Guatemalan episode. Who knows what the, the Aztecs, the Mayans would have developed? Well, they wrote it down, so we know about that. Yeah, but... Who know what yeah, they right, would have right, progressed right. into had it not been for Cortez oh, exactly, and exactly, smallpox? Exactly. I get what you're saying. Yeah, now. I was just thinking. Yeah, um, yeah. I do wonder, like, because like there's still some like remote islands too that are not inhabited by Western colonizers, or I mean, they still have very strong native roots. Not necessarily in Fiji, but um, in other parts of Oceania. I mean, there's records of of completely isolated places that have really put in the kibosh on western colonization so we'll never know what that's like and there were some Uh, places like there were some tribes like in papua new guinea who were very insulated from western influence for a long time so we got to see their culture kind of develop and we got to see how it would be in the pre-colonial era because colony colonization didn't really reach them so like we get to compare with like japan too which is another albeit much larger island nation uh, and how different it was for the Japanese civilization to, to create itself and to create a written language so early on that they've been able to have such a long, detailed history um, compared to a much smaller island nation where it wasn't necessary to have a writing system. So oral tradition persevered probably yep. a lot longer until missionaries arrived. Anyway, it's just like one of those cool things that it's like unfolding the puzzle of history that made me want to do the podcast in the first place. Single tier. Yep. Beautiful. Um, I just, I'm just, don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, while Kiki gets herself um, put back together. Yeah, I, I just need a minute. She's a blubbering mess. History gets this way. Um, <laughs> we're going to take another break. Another one. And then we're going to come back. We're going to give our post-research familiarity ratings. That was a really good, can you say that one more time just so that they know how good you were at saying it? I'm not going to ruin a good thing. And then we're going to get into our current events and we'll hit you up with who our, ne- who our country is for next week. See you then. Welcome back, everybody. That concluded our discussion on the country of Fiji. Uh, We're going to come back and we're going to hit things off with some current event discussion. 
Kiki, what's new in the world with you? So the books that I've been reading is the only thing that's interesting and new about me. That's for sure. Yep. Anyway, so I just finished (laughs) a book called uh, Girl on the Velvet Swing by Simon Batts. He has two A's in his name right next to each other. I don't know how to say it. Uh, it's called, the sub, subtitle is Sex, Murder, and Madness of the Dawn of the 20th Century. So this was like a true crime book about the rape, or alleged rape, depending on who you ask, of Elizabeth, or no, sorry, Evelyn Nesbitt by one, uh, I forget his name, but he was like this architect. He designed Madison Square Gardens. And so she says, like, um, I was 16 years old. He got my mom away. He lured me to his house. He got me drunk on champagne slash drugged me, and then he raped me. And then several years later, she is touring Europe with the man who would become her fiancé and later husband. And then she he proposes to her, and she's like, well, I, I don't know how you're going to react to this news because this super successful millionaire architect uh, raped me when I was 16. And then her later fiance, husband, fiancé guy loses his shit in the worst way. Um, and there's just like a lot of like, he said, he said, she said, but years after she told him this, they get married. He kills the architect, um, at the theater. Yeah. He shows up at the theater and he's like, he fucking killed him. And then it was a huge trial. Um, like the trial itself had two mistrials. And then on the third trial, they're like not guilty for reason of insanity. This guy goes to a mental institution, breaks out of the mental institution, goes to Canada, I can't, I was like, you're, we kind of get it. We don't think you're crazy. We think you are just kind of crazy because this guy raped your wife. Oh, Canada. Um, and like, there's just like a lot of intrigue. It's a lot of like reputations are on the line because it's the early 20th century. People are like, um, you're not allowed to do things, but you're allowed to do them. You just can't let anybody know you do them. Very dramatic. Just finished that one today. Why is it called Velvet Swing? So the architect had a velvet swing in his apartment and... Um, there was a movie based on Elizabeth Evelyn Ned Spitz life in the 1950s called girl on the velvet swing. Um, okay. cause it was just something that he had, she played on it. Uh, and that's how she described herself in like a memoir or something. The movie was named that. And then this book is named that as a reference to the movie as a reference to the story, but it's very wow, wild. That's a trip. Very wild. I've also been quite on a romance novel kick. I read Ooh. always by Lindsay Sands. Destiny's Captive by Beverly Jenkins, and uh, Bliss, Lindsay Sands, Falling for the Highlander, Lindsay Sands, In the Midst of Winter, Elizabeth Allende. That's a little bit of a notch above the standard, like, bodice ripper romance novel. That one was very good. Also you say a bodice memory. of a romance novel? They're called bodice rippers because the covers huh, have a yeah. woman with a, her yeah. breast tumbling out. Anyway, I read What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, which is a memoir by Haruki Murakami, who I read in preparation for the Japan episode. I was just interested about his life. I read Sharp Objects because I started the HBO series. Finished it. Not going to let anything go because I know yeah. Brad's watching it right now, but that's by Jillian Flynn if you guys want to talk to me about it. It's on my read list, too. It's I'm excited to read it. Um, and I think, yeah, that's, that's basically where I end up. But here's one thing. When I was reading Falling for the Highlander, Brad, you tell me what's wrong with this. So there's one thing. This book is set in, like, 1160 England. Like, Norman Conquesty England, but not quite. Okay. We have, um, like, a, a, a young man and a young woman in their marital bed. And the narrator, I'm not going to say what they were describing, but they, they make a reference They're to... They're doing it. They make a reference to corn 
as in like nibbling on corn on the cob. What's wrong with that picture? What the fuck is corn? Is what's wrong with that picture? It's a ele- it's England in eleven sixty. Where the fuck would they get corn from? They don't they don't visit Middle America for another five hundred years. So that is the geographical point to make for a discrepancy. My point is that there's nothing inherently sexual or romantic about the corn. That's kind of the point. It's, it's, it's kind of a joke. It's kind of a joke in the book, in the text. I'm not gonna get into. It. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like so. Um, you know the the book Aragon, the, the terrible. I never read it. But okay, so yeah. So it's written when a guy's young. It's kind of a, it's it's poorly written. It steals a lot of stuff from Tolkien. It's uh. a it's a fanboys kind of uh, series. Okay. And, uh, it was the, very popular when I was in elementary school. Yeah, and the main character he lives like in this little squalid town in the in the mountain ranges. Okay, and there's this this part where he he leaves the mountain ranges, he gets to this big open plains, and um, he, like he there's one sentence where he remarks like, oh yeah, the towering storm clouds, you know, like tall and magnificent is like cathedrals, and like what's a cathedral? How's this kid know what a cathedral is? He's lived in a hut his whole life, you know, like it's just okay. Yeah, you can't. You like, have to I mean, realize who you're writing for and who is the right. Yeah perspectives um but anyway like there's a lot of other historical discrepancies in this book but that one was really bothering me because i'm thinking like well let's just pretend like the narrator knows what corn is and i'm like well then what else does the narrator know does the narrator know what flashlights are so they're like yeah they're carrying a torch it's like flashlight but natural i don't know it's it's bothered me ever since maybe um this bodice ripper is told from the perspective of aliens looking down and it's like an omnipotent kind of... Yeah, maybe that's it. And the thing I was going to mention about the Elizabeth Allende novel, In the Midst of Winter, um, was that one of the features is from Guatemala. And she's like my age, like 25, when this book was written as a character in 2017. Uh, and it mentions her like growing up in like the post-colonization turmoil of Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And there's a priest character in the book that references... Um, one of the priests that we mentioned in the episode that was killed for basically just talking about people being killed by the government. Uh, and I feel like that was like another gift of this podcast was like, I mean, reading this in a book and hearing about it is one thing, but hearing about it and understanding the context and like a little more about the history behind those events makes that, that book, that novel and that character's experience so much more rich for me. So that was a, a good one. That was in the midst of winter by Isabel Allende. Very recommend. And we'll see what I have reading next week. That was two weeks of books. I didn't read those all in one week because we did miss last week. But what about you, Brad? What's new with you? It's a lot. Well, um, Kiki got to read two weeks worth of books because last week I was off the grid. I went to eastern Tennessee with my family. I got a lake house. Um, it was very, very fun. It was this cool little... It's like, it's like a river, but it's technically a lake. It's like a Tennessee Valley Authority lake. So it's like man-made, but super, super deep. Lots of eagles, lots of hawks, lots of wildlife. That's cool. It was fun. It was great. It was a good break before school starts back. Um, as I'm sure a lot of listeners will empathize with um, getting that summer kind of um, time away before back to the grindstone. Um, other than that, I set myself up some goals to actually catch up on some classics. Like, I've never read The Count of Monte Cristo, but, I do my, on, but that's on my list. Back when um, I ate meat, a Monte Cristo was one of my favorite sandwiches. Can't be a deep fried sandwich. That's also on my list now. I'll eat that while I read. Um, that's on my list. I don't know if anyone knows about the uh, the kind of pulp fiction series, The Dresden Files. They had a new little book come out called uh, Briefcases. I'm going to read that. 
Um, this is book. It's a short novel in between book, I think, 14 and 15. Long series. Very, very pulpy. Very, very fun. It's about a modern-day wizard. Yeah. Sounds so. like fun. I know Kiki's really big about not just reading books, but she listens to them on audiobooks. She can get through them faster and get through them all times of day. Here's the thing, because when we had Cher on as our guest for the Tajikistan episode, he was giving me shit about listening to books. He's like, well, it's not the same as reading books. I'm like, no, it's not the same. But guess what? The oral tradition spans much further back in history than the written tradition, as exemplified in our Fiji episode. It's not like Fiji's Fijians just didn't exist. It's not like they didn't have stories for thousands of years. They just weren't writing them down. They were telling them to each other. You know what? That's what audiobooks are. It's people telling me stories, me remembering the parts that matter about them, and being able to relate that and relate to it myself. That's what I feel about audiobooks, and that is directed towards you, Cher, who might be listening to this, probably. And if we were monetized, we would plug Audible so hard right now, yeah. but we're not yet. Audible... Audible, you we're waiting for your email. At us, Audible. At us, at... <laughs> Send us a DM at, at the World Podcast on Twitter. You can leave us a comment at, at our blog, uh, the world as we know it, podcast.wordpress.com. Don't read any of the content on our blog. We're better than that now, but... <laughs> <laughs> we were young and naive when we started that. Uh, but, you know, Audible, we're waiting for you. <laughs> so that being said, uh, thank you so very much, guys, for tuning into another episode of The Roar As We Know It. You can catch us next week for our next country, Paraguay. Paraguay. So until then, Mote. Mote.